Okay, we're going to transition into our study now. If you have your Bible, open up to Galatians. We started a few weeks ago this study in the book of Galatians, and it has been great going through it so far. We're in our fourth message. Let me read to you this passage. This passage I almost titled Clash of the Titans of Faith. I don't know if you remember growing up in the 80s, I remember this old movie, Clash of the Titans. You know, these, there was this, the, the Kraken, this giant Godzilla-like creature and the head of Medusa. It was this old Greek mythology movie, but it was the Clash of the Titans, these two. You know, these two characters now, people, apostles, in this passage are going to clash. Two titans of the faith, Peter and Paul. Let me read to you this. In verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So you're seeing here that Paul is opposing Peter. And what I want to give to you right at the outset is he is condemning the hypocrisy of Peter and what he is fighting for here essentially is freedom from fearing men. And we'll get to that as we go through the passage, but all of the sermons so far have had this kind of theme. The very first sermon I titled The Rescuer, and in that message, Paul was fighting for freedom from the false, a false gospel. And in the second message, I titled it The Persecutor, if you remember that, the work of, of Saul as a persecutor of the church. But in his writing, he was fighting for freedom from division because he talked about how he came out of that life into serving in the church and found a unity among the leadership and accountability. And he was fighting to not have division in the church. I talked last week about the spies that had come into the church, and he was fighting for freedom from traditions that can entrench us in legalism. And today, what we see, I've titled this The Hypocrite, and he is fighting for our freedom from man, fearing man specifically. So that's what we're getting in this. Now, that is the cause. I'll just point it out because it says here that uh, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision parting. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about fear and specifically fearing men versus fearing God. In fact, in Proverbs 29, 20, 25, it says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. And that's what's going to happen in this passage. Now think about a snare. A snare is like a trap that you find yourself in all of a sudden and it traps you, it ensnares you, and then you're stuck in that. And if you are a person who fears men, you can become ensnared like that. But here's the thing. Are we talking about fear that's like there's a rattlesnake right down there by my foot and I'm afraid now because it could bite me? Or is it broader than that? Because it is. Think about how in Proverbs 9.10 it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Now you see, 
There's the word fear. It has a broader interpretation because it's not the intent of God's word to, to shape within us the kind of fear of God that you would have of a rattlesnake. It's not the same. I would liken it to when I went and visited Yosemite National Park in California and hiked up to the top of Half Dome. Half Dome, if you know that, is a giant rock face This way up. It could take you all day, most better part of a day, to hike to the top of this thing. When you get up there, you're looking at this valley. You're as high as some of the mountain peaks around, and there is a healthy fear of awe. I am awe-inspired at what I'm looking at, but I'm also not going to go stand on the edge and be careless. You see, fear can also be an awe of something with that kind of feeling. The fear of the Lord, to have an awe of the Lord, to know who He is, is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge because you are wise to not play on the edge because of who He is. You know that He is loving. You've learned this, and, but He's also just, and He's also, He will deal with sin. And there's a healthy sense within you, and it, it affects the way that you live your life. I think about C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, they had this character, uh, Aslan, who was a depiction of what it would have been like if God went into that world of Narnia. Instead of being a man, he was a lion. And in Narnia, there are lots of animals as well as people, and they can talk. And, and, but in Narnia, as you read the books, there's this line that says this about Aslan, the lion. He is not a tame lion, you know. They would talk to him like that. What do they mean by that? It's like, you can't control him. And you get this sense reading the books, Aslan is loving. He cares about truth. He's sacrificial for the ones that he loves, but he will deal with evil and he has the power within him to do it. He cannot be stopped. There is no amount of evil in Narnia that could thwart him even though they try. And there, there's that sense about God. And, and C.S. Lewis tried to capture that in Aslan. To, to give us a picture, that kind of picture of God. He is loving, and, but He will deal with evil, and there's no amount of power within evil that could ever thwart Him. And the, the understanding of that is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. If you bring into your life things that are evil, you should fear the righteousness of God, because He will deal with it in His time. That's what He's talking about. Now, let me take you back to Galatians, because Peter acted in a certain way because he feared man. I've given you a little bit of context of fear there, and let me show you what happens in this. My first point is confronting Christian brothers. Now, let me read to you again verse 11. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So there is a confrontation going on. He stood condemned. Paul is going to see what Peter is doing and the very act of him doing it. Sometimes our sin is in secret and we don't know. People don't know about it. But what Peter did was very public and he stood condemned. He could not deny it. You could see that he was doing it. And Peter opposed him. So I ask a couple questions here because Paul's teaching us through God's word. How do we confront? Because in this Paul to to Peter confrontation, it's very public and it's immediate. The context is like, he came, I saw what he was doing and I posed him to his face. 
He didn't say, let me confront, consult with other leaders. Maybe we'll talk about it with him. Uh, you know, I don't want to embarrass him in front of, that's not the approach he takes. He comes forward, he sees it, and he deals with it publicly and immediately. Now, I read that, is that, is, is the Bible instructing me to do that? Like if I find out that there's sin in someone's life, I, I, I see it, do I immediately, stand up, you over here, I'll have an invisible person so no one's embarrassed. Stand up over here in front of the whole church, we're going to talk about your sin, you stand condemned in front of us all. Is that what the Bible is teaching us? And what you're going to see as we go through this, and this is why I want to pause for a moment on this verse and give you some, some biblical context for how we con confront one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me give you um, another way, Galatians 6, if you turn your page over, verse 1, now Paul's actually instructing the, the congregation here in chapter 6, he says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Well, that doesn't seem very gentle, what you did with Peter. I'm sure it was, there was some shame there. He's publicly in front of people. But what he give, what the instructions he gives to the congregation are a little bit different. So I want to talk about this for a second. I just showed you two ways and how you might confront. So let me ask, let me make this point, when do we confront? And I'm going to go to a couple other texts of Scripture to help us with this. And the first is going to be Matthew 18, because in that we see different levels of rebuke. In fact, I'll read, I'll read it to you in Matthew 18, verse 15. This is Jesus talking, and he says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you see the first kind of Instruction is to confront privately. Just go and talk to a brother or a sister in Christ. And you do it privately. It's not publicly. But then Jesus goes on to say, if he, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Here comes the next level. But if he does not listen, so we need something else, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now we see at this next level, take others along. So we, the instruction from Christ is you went and you privately had a conversation, but, but it didn't work, didn't listen to you for, for whatever reason, didn't work. So now he says, get some, some other Christian brothers or sisters, he says two or three, to come and let's talk about it. And I, and I have been in this scenario where I was brought in and there's an issue between these two people and they're talking about it. And I remember a verse that says, you know, when you hear one side, you think they're right. But then the Bible says, always check the other side. So we're sitting there, and I hear this, oh, okay. And then and they were really upset. And I said, okay, hold on. Now, and I actually shared the verse with them. And when they heard it, they said, okay, so I need to, the Bible says I need to give this person a chance. So that, let's listen. And then they shared their side, and we were able to work through it, just like Jesus did. We did exactly what Matthew 18 tells us to do, right? But sometimes that doesn't work either. And there's a whole other level. Jesus goes on to say, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, and let me just pause because he's already going to the fourth level, but then it goes public. Now see, Peter and Paul went, he, Peter, he got the public right away. Paul came in public right away. But Christ has got, he's working through. And the, re, the answer, as we go through this, you're going to see, is because leaders are held to a higher standard. That's going to be the reason why. But 
when we're talking about the sheep of the church, you deal with them gently. Okay? We don't want to bring about public shame per se. But here at this level, we do because we need the whole body now to be in action on this. Because if you don't deal with sin in people's lives, it can lead them astray. And it can be destructive in life. So you're thinking long term about the salvation of the sheep from that destruction. And the whole church needs to be brought in on something sometimes. I've never had to actually do that. But I have within small groups, I've done it within maybe small groups where the whole small group needs to know about this. And the usage of the whole small group can be effective. Okay? But look what he says. Even if that doesn't work, he goes on to say, um, if he doesn't listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, the meaning behind that is because, see, the Jews wouldn't sit with Gentiles. They wouldn't sit with tax collectors. And I, I did put the word excommunicate up there. That might, the definition of that, you could find a range. But the way that I see it is, I would describe it this way, is that you must be connected to the body of Christ. That is taught in scripture because it gives you life. And I, over and over again in sermons, I talk about here's my whole body and every part of my body, every member, every organ, every digit, we're all connected together and we give life one to another. My heart pumps and it sends blood all over my body because the blood cells carry oxygen to the muscles and to the brain. It needs all that. There's an interconnected and interdependency of each individual part, one to each other. And if you take one part and separate it, it can die. The life-giving stops. If I take my pinky and set it over there, it might last a little while, but it's going to die. And so what Christ is doing here is that very thing on a spiritual level. You pull an individual part away, you can't be here and it's supposed to create that sense of felt need for interconnectivity for life. And it does something else too. If there's sin, if we see a person that has sin, and I'm talking about like they know it's sinful, but they're not going to change. We're not talking about when we mess up, you know, and then we're trying to get it right. I mean, this is a level where it says they, they continue to, do, to sin. They've accepted this. You can't let it be in the church. There's something that you're communicating about. It's okay for that to be in our community, and it doesn't change or affect any of our relationships or interdependency. But that's not true. If I recognize something on my skin like this, I'm not going to go, well, if it wants to be there, I'm going to let it just be there. I can't do that. It will harm my body over time. I have got to deal with that. I've got to remove that. And it is even more true of the head. In Scripture, there's a standard for pastors, for elders, for leaders of the church. They cannot have sinful habits in them because of the power of influence that they have. You've got to deal with it. You've got to remove it if it doesn't want to change. And you're going to see that through here. And it's one of the reasons why Paul deals with Peter publicly. Because, first of all, what he was doing was public. But also because he's a leader 
He has influence, and there's a statement being made to everybody that that's not tolerable. The gospel doesn't teach that, and if you're doing it, then you're being motivated by something other than the gospel. So it has a, a corrective, a, a preventative, a teaching um, element to it. And let me show you this in Scripture. We looked at Matthew 18. I'm going to read to you from 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, because if an elder has uh, an issue, Paul tells Timothy to publicly rebuke them. He says in 1 Timothy 5, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's already dealing with potential sin issues within leaders of the church. And it's interesting that what he says to him is if somebody stands up and makes an accusation against an elder and against a pastor, don't receive it carte blanche. There needs to be uh, other witnesses. You need to sort it out because how, what a great weapon it would be of Satan to just bring people in to make accusations. I saw, I saw that guy, you know, down in the red district. I saw you could easily sling mud and create problems. And he says, there needs to be two to three witnesses. You need to sit down and then verify those things. But look what he says after that. He says, as for those who persist in sin. So now if they're persisting, that means they've sorted it out. The evidence is there. There's recognition that there was some sin in that pastor or that elder. If, they, if they're not going to change, then rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And that's exactly what you're going to see happen in this passage. The public rebuke is, is related to having an impact on the whole congregation because they see we don't tolerate that. The gospel doesn't create that. And that's why it's important. This, is, this teaching is important for the church. So we see um, how we might confront and when we might confront. And let me take you to the next verse because we see the changing faith of a titan. So I've been calling, you know, Paul and Peter titans of the faith. And here's Peter. Let me read you verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what is it about Peter? At the end, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about his life because he should know. He know. He should know that it's wrong. And you see a changing in his heart. I bet there's a point where he said, this is wrong. How did he go from this is wrong to to not only tolerating it, but one step further, participating in it. And the answer is, you see this timeline, I put it up there. Peter's, he's, it says in verse 12, he's sitting and he's eating with Gentiles. Now, you remember that Peter had a vision as well, that the Lord came to him and basically said, Gentiles can be in the church. It was this sheet that came down with animals, and it's, it's a story in Acts and what happened to him, in the same way that Paul said, I got it straight from the lips of Jesus Christ, Peter could say on this issue of Gentiles and Jews, I got it straight from the lips of Jesus Christ, they should be equal with us in the church. He knows. And it says that there was a time where he's sitting and eating with them, and he's demonstrating that faith. 
but it says for before. So that means something happened. Before this thing happened, he got it right. But then when this thing happened, which is the next one, Jews arrive. They come from the circumcision party is a reference to these Jews that come out of Jerusalem that are holding to many of the customs of the old Jewish faith. We talked a little bit about that next week, but the Jews arrive, and when they arrive, Peter draws back, separates himself. Peter is afraid, it says, of what Jews think, or that could be broader as well, but fear is definitely in there. That's the timeline. That's not even the main point. I'm setting up here the changing faith of a titan. You just see the timeline of the change, but let me, uh, let, let me unpack it more. The next thing I have here is the deception of sin. Now, remember the warning from Proverbs. The fear of man can be a what? It can trap us. It can ensnare us. And this is what you're seeing in Peter right now. Is somewhere he's moved through this that has trapped him now, and he's stuck. And that's because sin can be very deceiving. It's deceptive. In fact, the Bible describes it in a way that many times we're not, we're blind to sin. There's this great comparison I make over and over again in sermons. Blind people know they're blind and physically blind, and they build into their life things to help them deal with the physical blindness. But spiritual blindness, you're not even aware. You don't even know that you're blind to things. Part of it is because a guy like Peter he should know. But when he begins to come in the entrapment, he, he builds some things in his life that give him the confidence that he's okay. Because why would you suddenly think the sin is okay to have a presence? Well, there must be other things in your life. And this is what Christians can do. They look at all of the things that they've built into their life. And there's probably somebody that comes here and you go to church, you, you read your Bible, you take communion, uh, even in this culture, there's an aspect where I've confessed my sins to, to a religious person. Somehow, if those things have a presence, they counterbalance the fact that there's some kind of sin that's been in my life. I know it's wrong, but it's been there for a decade. Why? Why do Christians, even in the maturing process, continue to allow sin to have this presence for so long? And the answer is because they're deceived. They're either deceived by the fact that they think that they are righteous because of the things they put into their life that they don't deal with it. Peter has done a lot. At this point in Galatians 2, he's done a lot for the Lord. But sin can be deceptive. Now let me show you this. Because it uses the words uh, circumcision party and it says, from James. Now, do you realize James is like the giant leader of the church in Jerusalem? The church stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. Paul was a tool to be used to break it out into the Gentile world. But he is a pillar there. And there's this interesting scene later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, where Paul comes to meet them. And James and, and Paul have a meeting. Look right here, it's, it's Peter and Paul. Acts 21, it's James and Paul. And this is what is said. James comes to him and says to Paul in Acts chapter 21, verse 10, it says, How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. 
Now you say, Pastor, what's the significance of that? Well, look what James was saying there. He was saying, look, our church here in Jerusalem, we have converted many of the Jews out of the Old Testament system. They're, they're mess Messianic Jews. They're believers in Christ. But then he adds this thing where he says, and they're zealous for the law. Do you remember we talked about that last week? The law were, was all these customs that they wanted to keep in their lives. Circumcision was the big one, but there were others like dietary laws. There were hundreds of laws. And so you see this mix kind of of church cultures because the way the church was shaping up in Jerusalem was the church was uh, holding on to some of those things. And here comes Paul to meet him. I wrote down here, so this is how I wrote it down, James at times held to some of the law. So James believes in the gospel, but he's still going to, I want to practice it this way. I'm going to keep some of these things in my life because I feel they're, they're honoring. And here's the interesting thing. Here comes Paul, and he says that to him. They're zealous for the law. And then James says to him, what are we going to do about that? It's like two church cultures. What are we going to do about that? That's an interesting scene. And I don't have time to unpack the whole thing, except that Paul, who always wants to be all things to all people for the, for the gospel, goes through a process to make himself more approachable to that church there. It's an interesting thing. But you see here, he is going to defend the purity of the gospel. You cannot add these customs to these Gentiles. And that's what this is about. The deception of sin, then what I'm saying is, Peter is guilty of sin by aligning himself with men in error. In other words, they came from James. They came from there's a circumcision party from the Jerusalem church. And now Peter is aligning himself with them. So for before they came, they, he saw with Gentiles and now he's withdrawing. Well, you realize that's ethnic. You're Gentiles. I mean, just imagine if somebody came to this church and somehow uh, a certain ethnic group began to pull away from us. There's division in the church. We're only going to sit. We're only going to fellowship. We're only going to eat with that ethnic group. That is not what the gospel produces. It doesn't produce that. Within this church congregation, we should not have that. And it existed in that church. And Peter withdrew, and he was in, in essentially creating division in the church. Why? Because he aligned himself with men of error. And there's a warning embedded in that. Be careful that you align yourself with men or women who teach something that's actually in error. Now, it says here the motivation for why he did it was fear, right? Okay, fearing the circumcision party. That's why he did it. And I, wanna, I have some thoughts here about that. Fear of man. Remember what we said? Fear is not just the rattlesnake. The fear is a sense of awe at the size, a fear of God then is the scope of who he is and his attributes, his righteousness as well. Fear of man means you view a person or people as important, having an awe about them, elevating their approval and fearing their disapproval. He had a sense of awe about the circumcision party. Because 
there was ethnic pride. That was something that the Jewish aspect of the church struggled with. Pride in who we are. I mean, we have Moses. We have the, the Ten Commandments came from us. The whole world uses basically the Ten Commandments. It came from us. The Messiah came from us. I mean, there's a lot of pride there. The salvation of the entire world through our people group, right? And there's a sense of awe. They're coming. I, these are just Gentiles. <laughs> you know, in our culture growing up, we didn't even sit with these people. I got it. There's a sense of awe. I want to be connected into that, and it's affecting him. And what happens is you elevate people to a level of awe that should not be. So you fear their disapproval, but you want their approval. Fear of man also means that you desire for their blessing, and it amounts to worship. You see, there's only one who should have that kind of awe, and it's God. And there's a way in which you dethrone Him when you elevate men to a level of awe that is causing you to essentially create division in a church. I put here as well, fear of man means you give some form of human approval power over your heart, which only God should have. That's why, to me, this one section is so important, because what Paul is fighting for here is freedom from fearing man. You should be able to teach God's Word. You should be able to deal with false teaching and correct things without fearing, without having an awe of people to such an extent that it thwarts your ability because you don't want to be disproved or disapproved of or pulled into their status. We cannot fear men in that way. And you see that Peter has changed the changing faith of a titan. Somehow the existence in that community and the, the, the coming of, the, of that circumcision party drew him backwards. And now he was putting faith essentially in something else. I put my faith in the approval of this party, this group of men. I'm going to fear their disapproval. And it's, it's de dethroning God's role in that. Now, I'm going to move on because... The next section is how there can be a corroding influence of these kinds of leaders. Well, it's just Peter, right? No. And this, this kind of circles me back to the earlier section where we said, why do we deal with pastors or elders harshly or publicly? Because they can have such a powerful influence if they got it wrong. So... Um, you think about James and the Jerusalem Jews, they essentially influenced Peter. Then Peter, like a domino, falls this way, and he has an influence too, because it says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Two times it uses the word hypocrisy or hypocritical. This is why we said this is about the hypocrite. The hypocrite is Peter, but he has turned the entire church into hypocrites because now there's division, and the division is based off something that's not from the gospel. It's not from God. So you can see that if leaders don't get it right, they can lead an entire church in the wrong direction. That's why it's so important 
as he wrote to Timothy, to correct them in the way that he said. I just put here, the church begins to act like Peter, and even the church leaders follow. Barnabas is one of the great leaders of the church as well, and now he too is a hypocrite. John MacArthur wrote, whatever the leaders are, the people become. The prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 4 said, like people, like priest. Jesus himself said, everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. One of my favorite writers is Alexander Strzok. He said, biblical history demonstrates that people will seldom rise above the spiritual level of their leadership. Because people are sheep, shepherd elders have an extraordinarily powerful impact on the behavior, attitudes, and thinking of the people. If elders have a contentious spirit, as an example, the people will inevitably become contentious themselves. If elders are inhospitable, the people will be unfriendly and cold. If elders love money, the people will become lovers of money. If elders are not sensible, not balanced, and not self-controlled, their judgment will be characterized by ugly extremes, which will cause the people to be extreme and unbalanced themselves. If elders do not faithfully hold to the authority of the word, the people will not hold to it. And so that's why there's this high standard for church leaders. And in this example, do you know what we see? We see Peter, by his actions, he is nullifying Paul's divine teaching because of his alignment with men in error. That is a fantastic example that we get from Scripture. Leaders have an impact. And Peter's actions led a church in the wrong direction, but on top of that, what he was doing was undermining the pure gospel of what Paul was teaching. And that's why it's dealt with the way that it is. So the last point, this leads me to the last point, which is correcting conduct then through discipleship. Through discipleship. And verse 14 says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, and he goes on to say, let me come back in a second, but I just put the points up there. Observation, perception, correction. In other words, he says, when I saw, so there's observation. So if you want to think about correcting, okay, first of all, you need to know the gospel. You need to know God's word and God's teaching. Okay? Without that, what are you calling them to? What standard? But there's an observation, and he perceives, I know the gospel. Paul knows the gospel. I observe. I see Peter, what he's doing. I've observed it. I can see in your life observations that, and he uses this word, not in step with the gospel. Now, first of all, you can't make corrections unless you have that observation. And the reality is that many of us, we might have things that need corrected, but you never see it. If all you do is come here and you sit on Sunday and then you're not plugged into the body at all, you don't get that ministry to yourself. That's why I always use the phrase, discipleship happens best in deep relationships, in smaller groups, in the context of community. Our whole church is the vision is to pull people inward, to connect with people in the community of God. You live life around each other 
You give life to each other, but you can't make any correcting of each other if there's not any observation. And he uses this phrase, not in step. Now, just think about this. I mean, I use this phrase all the time. I think it's really clever the way he says it. Like there's a gospel standard and you're not in step. It's like I'm walking by the Spirit, right? That's a step. And you're not in step. I've stepped somewhere else, right? So just think of it this way. I use this example in the first service. If all of you stood up right now and somebody put on a country song and you started to do some, I, I can't do any dances. I'm not very good. But you do some line dance. I think that's what they call it, right? You know, I'll tell you, who, whose church is good at this is, uh, is Pancho's church. You know, all the Filipinos, they really know how to do this. They, they like to, to do this. I, I've seen it. And they're all synchronized. I don't know what it is. You know, they know how to, to do all the movements, you know. And they're all in step. They're all in sync, right? And if there's one that is not in step, you can tell. Like if I went over there and said, hey, I want to try this, Pancho, and I jumped in with him, they'd all be doing their thing, and I'd be out there, you know, kind of, you know, they could tell, Pastor Kevin doesn't know what he's doing there. You are totally out of step with what the pattern is. And there's a way in which, by him using this language, not in step, that when you, sometimes the, the decisions we make, how we live our life, the way I interacted with my wife there, the way that I was too hard on my son there, the way that I envied one of my brothers because they have something that I'd really like, those things are not in step with the gospel. And the gospel is supposed to come and, and change that within us. But sometimes it, it cannot happen unless you're connected to the body in such a way that we can speak to one another about that. That's why Christian maturity happens through this road of discipleship and relationship, observation, perception, and correction. Think about these verses. I use these often. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 15, Paul is talking about the human body, and he's relating it to the church. And he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. In other words, Every part of the body is important. The eye can't look at the hand and go, I don't really need you. You can't do that. The, the, the eye needs the hand. Sometimes it itches and the hand comes up and goes like this, right? There is a way that they need each other. And he's saying within the church, you need each other. You can't look at here and go, I really don't need some of the relationships in this church. The Bible grades against that. And then Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, Paul's talking about the whole body growing up into to spiritual maturity. And he makes this comment where he says, you need to speak truth and love to one another. So that's how we do it. We, we observe, and then we have this perception, not in step. And then we go and we have a conversation. And the motivation is the glory of God and the, mo and, and the, the vehicle are words that are loving and they're gentle. Galatians 6, 1, we read. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And then we go on and it says Colossians 3, 15 to 17. He says, teaching and admonishing one another. There's a, there's a great, one of the one another's is that the way we grow is, this is one of the things that's going on right now. Teaching and admonishing. But I, when, when teaching is public, totally necessary. But there's also like a private teaching where what you can do is through the, after the observation, 
in perception, the corrective teaching is done privately. Remember, the first level Jesus said was go one-on-one privately, not public. But there can be a teaching there. All of these things are necessary, and what I'm advocating for is for people of God's church to be connected with each other in a way that Christian discipleship happens. Now, we get to the end, you see this interconnectedness, interdependency on discipleship. And my last slide, can I see my last slide? When does discipleship end? Think about this. I wrote this down. While Peter was called to discipleship, consider the journey from that calling to his sermon in Acts 2, and then from Acts 2 to Galatians 2, which is what we taught out of today when he is being rebuked by Paul, his discipleship continues through the work of Paul. Sometimes I ask this question, I say, when does discipleship end? And the answer is not until we're in heaven. Our discipleship is lifelong because there's always some aspect of us that needs to be conformed to the image of Christ. Here are titans of the faith, and you can see little errors in all of them that still need to be conformed to Christ. Now, Jesus came to Peter, and he said to him, in fact, I kind of went through uh, the Gospels, and you have like in Matthew 4, Jesus comes and says, follow me. And you might say, well, that's the beginning of the discipleship, right? There's that relationship, and they're going to walk the road together, right? And you look at this, Peter's discipleship process was up and down, up and down. As early on, uh, he would ask him questions, and they would interact, and you would see how Jesus would respond to him. At one point, he says, oh, you of little faith. Another time, he says, still without understanding. And then he gets to Matthew 16, and he asks the question, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, and he affirms him in that. And there's a moment there where you're seeing Peter grow. He is affirming that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, on the other hand, it was like this one moment. This one moment. Who are you? Jesus tells him who he is. And what's his response? His response is, what would you have me do? Like there's a surrender right there. Two different kind of testimonies, right? Peter's like a battle to surrender his whole discipleship journey. You know, in one scene, he's pulling out a sword. I'm going to do it my way. Cut the ear off. And he gets rebuked along the journey. I was looking at uh, in Matthew 17, Jesus took him up for the, the transfiguration. I mean, here's a way that Jesus built him in discipleship. I'm going to take you up to the mountain and show you a glimpse of the glory to come. And the, the Shekinah glory of God, really bright. It's an experience that he went through. He got to see the future a little bit there, what Christ was going to be like. And then you have, of course, the story where he says, I will never deny you. Wow, there's a statement of faith on his discipleship journey. That is commitment. Paul said, Lord, what would you have me do? Peter said, I will never deny you, only to deny him three times, right? And flee, everyone fleed him. But then later you see in a different gospel than Matthew where Jesus comes back and just like he denied him three times, three times he affirmed him. He said, Peter, do you love me? And he answers, yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. He started to get emotional. And he says, feed my sheep. And there's this total counterbalance where it's like three times denied, three times affirmed. This is Jesus growing him into 
Christ-likeness. And then you have, you know, Jesus ascends. And then you might go, well, discipleship is over. Now he's ready. No. See, discipleship's not like getting a college degree where there's like, now you got the degree, go get the job. You're qualified. Now you can counsel. You've got the, the, the degree. Now you've completed a certificate that says you have the necessary skilled labor for that job. Go get hired. It's not like that. Discipleship continues all the way to the end of your life unless God comes and calls us, a, us home. Because He stands up after the ascension in Acts chapter 2 and He preaches this message and thousands come and the church is, is born. Now He's the great pillar of the church, Peter, right? But then He's teaching him later in Acts, oh, Gentiles can be in the church. Great. But then we get decades later from Acts 2, we have Galatians 2 where Paul is rebuking him. Peter, you should know this. Do you see? That's what I want to show you is this up and down journey of discipleship in Peter. And here in this kind of peaking moment where he knows better, but his heart has slowly, he's been deceived within that what he's doing somehow is the right thing to do. He, he's in awe of these Jewish Christians. He's influenced and now his influence is causing others to, to do the same. And this is God's church, a bunch of flawed people called to follow after Christ. And because of his patience and love, he's continually conforming us. But the tool he uses besides his word is the community of Christ. Paul was a tool. What is your role? Has God used you? Are you close enough to people to observe so you can speak into their life? Are you receptive to others who might come and then speak into your life? But this is what we get with, the, with this example in this passage. And, uh, you know, the answer to the question is, when does Peter's discipleship end? Well, the answer is, it's still going on. I called you, Peter. Follow me. Jesus is already in heaven and it's decades later from the birth of the church, and he's still being discipled by Jesus. Only Jesus isn't physically here. He's doing it through Paul. So necessary. We need that. Do you know who in the church gets the least amount of ministry? It's usually the pastor. And I talk about this with my elders because the, pa the, the pastor is often doing so much ministry. And I, I'm not just talking about personal example. They've done studies of this. This is why so many pastors fall. This is why so many pastors burn out because they somehow live above the, the, the body of believers that they're actually supposed to be plugged into in such a way that they're getting life just as well. And I'm so thankful for our elders that we have a community of leaders that, I, that they're close friends to me that I can share my life with, that I can open up to, and they can correct me at times. And, and I, what I want to say is, if I need it, you need it. Everyone needs it. You need to be plugged in to the body of Christ. Lord, thank you for 
this example from Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for your patience and your grace and your love and your long-suffering, this long journey that, of discipleship that we walk, this up-and-down roller coaster experience of, of falling and then being picked up and then being affirmed and then failing again and then growing to be used in ministry. But then even later, like Peter, discovering through someone in your community that there's some sin in us that we still need to deal with. We're never finished conforming ourselves to your image, Lord. I'm just so thankful for your grace and your long-suffering. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that the journey's not alone, that you plug us into a body where we can be dependent on others, where we can get life from others and to grow in such a way that we participate in that, that we give life to some others in this church that we come alongside and encourage and exhort. And as Paul wrote, we teach and admonish. Let us never say, like the eye, I don't need the hand. We need each other. And I pray that you would be calling us to go deeper into church community, find life from others through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close as we worship.